you know, whether, whether it is their surprisingly quick wit, whether it is their conniving little minds, or whether it's their undeniable cuteness, it seems that kids can, can talk their way out of almost any and every situation. So I could see it now. You know, the, every jury would come back hung or every judge would finally just dismiss the case because everybody there had forgotten what we were even arguing about to begin with, right? That's their best trick is they just keep going and keep talking until you forget what you're talking about to begin with. But I hope you noticed that I said almost any situation. They can get themselves out of almost any, almost any situation. And I say almost because we know uh, even with their negotiating skills, as great as they may be, eventually uh, even they have their limits. You know, there comes a point, whether it's because of repeated disobedience, uh, whether it's because they, they broke a particular rule that, that you had really tried to drive home, uh, or, or whether it is just uh, my personal favorite simply because you said so, uh, there comes a point where negotiations have to stop. No matter the excuses, no matter the pleas, the consequences, they have to be faced. I remember uh, several years ago, we had taken our family to, to one of the, the parades. I can't remember if it was a homecoming parade or a Christmas parade. And I honestly can't remember which one of my children it was, which is great because it protects the guilty. And so I can't remember which one. Uh, but it was one of those days that was not a great day, and I had told whichever child this was that, hey, if you don't stop, we're going to have to go back to the car, we're going to have to have a, a spanking. Well, it persisted, and so that's what we did, and I just remember picking up this child, and I'm walking down the sidewalk, and as I am, they are screaming at the top of their lungs, no, daddy, please don't spank me, don't do it, and I'm thinking, oh, my word. Child Protective Services is going to come and take this child away from me right here in the middle of town. But on the other hand, I also was thinking in that moment, you know what? We're going to the car now. Like this is, the, the line had been crossed. It was time for, for punishment to, to be inflicted. And so that's what we did. Uh, but my point is that eventually consequences become non-negotiable, Right? Now, I begin there this morning because in the passage before us, what we find is that as true as that sentence is in earthly terms, in earthly relationships, the fact that, that consequences become non-negotiable, it's even more true and it's even more pressing, it's even more final in an eternal sense. You know, whether we acknowledge it or not, and whether we like it or not, and let's be honest, when we come to a passage like this one, it doesn't sit well with any of us. It's hard for any of us to, to really digest what we're reading here. But, but even so, even still, the, the Bible is clear that a day is coming. A day is coming for all of us where the time for negotiations, where the time for pleas will end in eternal consequences, whether it is faith in Christ or whether it is open rebellion against God, eternal consequences, they will have to be faced. Friends, on that day, there will be no excuses. There will be no going back. And so the question before us, as we consider the end of chapter 16 here, Luke chapter 16, the question before us, 
is really the, the million-dollar question. It's the question that we all have to face in this life. So are you prepared for when that day comes? Do you know, do you know where you will spend all of eternity? Friends, my prayer for us as we move through this is that when you leave this place, you will know and that you will be able to say beyond a shadow of a doubt that I will not have to bear the consequences of my sin because I am resting in the one who took those consequences for me. So, that's where we're headed. Let's look at it together. The first thing I want you to see in this passage is two different lives. Two different lives. And you see it there in the story that Jesus tells. Now, you'll recall in verses 14 through 18 that Jesus didn't so much detour. It seemed like he detoured, but really, he just changed his approach with these Pharisees. He went from considering a symptom of their sin, this, this love of money that they have, to really trying to drive down to, to the heart of their issues. He drove down to the, their hearts, right? That's what it says there in those verses. That he begins to address the, the issues, the underlying issues, the bigger issues that we all face. The fact that our hearts need to be transformed. The fact that we need to be redeemed from the inside out. We don't simply need to fix the, the, the way sin manifests itself in our lives, but we need something deeper than that. And so Jesus has been kind of narrowing his focus in that sense in verses 14 through 18. But now it seems that he kind of pulls back out, right? seems here he's kind of addressing the, the bigger issue again, this issue of money. Uh, but, but what I want to submit to you is really what's going on here is deeper than that. It's, it's really back to that heart issue again. It, it's combining the two things that we've seen in this chapter already. But, you know, we can't deny that at least part of the point here is about possessions, is about money, because the whole story centers around these two men and the great contrast in their earthly lives. Notice, there was a rich man. Uh, a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, that sounds great to us, and we say, okay, he had some money. But really, if we knew the culture there, those were the clothes of royalty. That, that was the clothes that, that kings wore, that princes wore. Now, we have no indication that this man was either one of those things, but what he had was enough money has bought him this thing. Lastly, notice there that, that he lives in luxury. Now, this is somewhat, somewhat a deduction on my part, but I think it's a safe one to make. The, the Greek word translated gate in verse 20 uh, was actually reserved for the type of, of ornamental entrances that would have been in front of palaces that would have been in front of mansions. And so we can safely assume that this man wouldn't have built such a gate to have a shack behind it, right? No, this man surely lived in the finest home that, that money could buy him. He had a mansion. He had service. He had all of those things that we would expect someone in his station to have. And so here is a man living completely opposite, it seems, to what Jesus has taught us in verses 9 through 13, right? This is a man who is only concerned about himself, only concerned about his own wealth. He has no interest in living for God's glory, and he has no interest in making friends for himself 
for eternity. Remember, that's what verse 9 had said. Now, we can say that with confidence because notice who is laying outside of his gates. The second man, Lazarus. And look at how differently Lazarus is described. You know, poor doesn't really do justice to what we see there. This man is destitute in almost every imaginable way. In almost every uh, basic human need, he is lacking. It says that, that he is sick, that, that he is covered in sores. We can probably deduce from this chapter that, that he was disabled because of his sickness. He's laying there at the gate day after day, and the reason why he doesn't move is because he can't move. He can't go anywhere. No one is there to, to pick him up and carry him somewhere else. Not only that, but it says that, that he is hungry. So hungry, in fact, that he would have been grateful even for the crumbs, even for the scraps that fell from this rich man's table. And lastly, maybe even worst of all, notice that, that at least in human terms, this is a man who is absolutely alone. He's alone. He has no one there to comfort him, no one there to support him, no one there to, to just care for his basic needs. In terms of companionship, all he has are these dogs who come by and, and lick his open wounds. And these weren't dogs that were man's best friend. They, these were wild dogs that, that roamed the streets, unfriendly animals. So he has nothing. In almost every earthly sense, the lives of these two men stand in complete contrast to one another. And notice that contrast extends not just to their lives, but also to their deaths. Notice in verse 22, it says, the poor man died. And that's the end of the sentence. But then it says that the rich man died and was buried. Now again, that doesn't seem like much, but consider what's being said there. The poor man, he died, and who, from an earthly perspective, noticed not a soul, that there was no funeral, there was no casket, no one to eulogize him, no one to remember him fondly, no, no burial. Either the, the dogs disposed of him or someone finally came by and threw him out of the city. There was nothing for him. But this rich man, what does it say? It says that he died and was buried. Surely he had the best casket money could buy. Surely he had the, the most elaborate funeral that money could buy. Surely there were many there to remember him, to talk about how great of a person he was. There was many to come to the burial of this rich man. And so, uh, the, the contrast is all-encompassing. But, but let's, let's pause there a moment, and let me ask you. Yes, th their lives stood in great contrast, but in the end, what difference did that contrast really make? Certainly, one lived a life of luxury and one lived a, a terrible, destitute life. But in the end, on that, that last day, what good did riches or poverty do either one of these men? The answer is none. Because what came for both of them? Death. Both of them died. 
What we recognize here and what we know to be true is that death is no respecter of peoples. Death does not see your money or my money or my poverty or or your poverty. It doesn't see any of that. Unless Jesus comes back first, all of us will have to face it. No amount of money can stop that. It is the, the great equalizer. But let's also note here that, that, that there's another contrast in these men's lives, a contrast in their spiritual well-being. And we really begin to see that from the very beginning. You know, Jesus is telling this story, and it's clear that, that he's trying to, to drive the story in this way. Spiritually, this, this rich man, he is in poverty. This, as rich as he may be in an earthly sense, from a spiritual standpoint, he is as poor as a person could be. And we know that because of all of those men like Lazarus, maybe women too, sitting outside of his gates. They were there every single day, and this rich man had every means to take care of them. He could have at least sent his servants out to give them food. And what did he do? He did nothing. He did not care for those who were right at his gates, right in his midst. And friends, there may be no sign, better sign of our spiritual state than the way that we feel about other people, especially other people who are less fortunate than we are. If we understand what Jesus has done for us, then friends, we have to understand that we too are as poor as could be. Only in him do we have anything. And that seems to be what Lazarus understands. Now, it's not nearly as clear here from the beginning, but, but one thing we should note is that his name literally means God has helped. And so as Jesus tells this story, he's trying to, to push us in that direction from the beginning. Right? He's trying to show us, hey, Lazarus has some amount of understanding. He, he is in some amount of good standing with God, and that becomes even more clear as we move to our second point here. We've seen two different lives. Secondly, in this passage, you see two different destinations. Notice, Lazarus dies, and immediately, what happens? Does he go to purgatory? Uh, does, he, does his soul sleep for some X amount of time? No. Immediately, it says, he is carried by the angels of God into the bosom of his father Abraham into the fellowship of all believers in heaven. He's, he's, he's ushered into the very presence of God. I want to stop there for a minute, because this is great news. In a sermon that's going to be a lot of bad news, this is great news. Because he's ushered into the presence of God where there is no more sores on his body where there is no more hunger, where there is no more poverty, where there is only eternal rest with his Savior, immediately ushered into the presence of God. Friends, what a reason to rejoice. If you have lost loved ones who are resting in Jesus, here is our hope. He did not abandon them. He did not leave them in the grave. They, even now, they close their eyes and they open them to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment, we will all be changed. For Lazarus, 
this was that moment. He died. And he was in the presence of his Savior. And blessed in the sight of God is the death of his saints. That's uh, Psalm 116, right? Psalm 116, verse 15. He was welcomed in. But notice, notice how differently things uh, go for, for this rich man. Uh, he too is immediately ushered in into an eternal destination. But, but his looks very different. It says that his is Hades. Now that word throughout the New Testament, even in the, the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament, has a lot of different meanings. Sometimes it, it describes the place of the dead. Sometimes it describes the place where the wicked go. And sometimes it describes what we know as what we think of as hell. But, but one commentator points out what that word never describes ever in Scripture is a place where believers go. A place where those who are resting in what God has done, resting in Christ, go. Here, this is a place of great torment. It's a place where, where even the poverty of Lazarus doesn't compare. This rich man is desperate for even one drop of water as he experiences these eternal flames. Now, now we think about that imagery and we think, what does that mean? And clearly, what, what Jesus has in mind here is a spiritual flame, right? His body has been buried. He's, with the, he's with, in this place spiritually. And so these, these flames, whatever they mean, however we can imagine flames being in them, it's what this man is experiencing in a spiritual level. Now look, I, I don't have to tell you that, that we live in a world that scoffs at this type of thing, that scoffs at this type of idea. Even in some Christian circles today, people are trying to do their best to push back against this idea of hell. They say it's, it's not consistent with who God has showed himself to be. It's too primitive. It's too barbaric. All of these things. And look, just to be frank with you, if that were true, it would make my job a whole lot easier. My conscience would be a whole lot clearer knowing that this was not a place that anybody, anybody might end up. But friends, the Bible won't leave us room for that. It won't let us simply dismiss what is clear here before us. We can't act as if this place, hell, that it, as if it doesn't exist. We can't act as if it's not as bad as what this clearly makes it out to be. If nothing else, it is a place of separation from God. And friends, there is nothing worse for those who have been made in His image than to be separated from Him completely. No joy. No peace. No light of his countenance to shine upon us. And so, but before we move to, to the next thing, let me ask you the question that we begin with. Where are you headed? What, what, what eternal destination will you find yourself in? It, it is the, the million dollar question. And it's the question that we have to deal with. And we have to deal with it now. We have to deal with it today. Because as we move to our third and final point, what we're going to see is that once death comes, once you are there, 
There's no going back. There is no excuse. So, we've seen two different lives, two different destinations, and then thirdly and finally in this passage, I want you to see two useless pleas. Two useless pleas, and you see it there in verse 24. This rich man, whether this is just to part of the story or whether this is reality, we don't know. But in verse 24, he's able to look up, and he's tormented from this place. He looks up from that place, and he says to Abraham, send Lazarus to give me some relief. And we have to recognize that this whole thing is dripping in irony. You know, he's calling Abraham his father, though he had never lived as if Abraham was his father. He recognizes and knows who Lazarus is, though he had been dismissing him at his gates for all of this time. And now, now, he wants Lazarus to do for him what he would never have done for Lazarus. Come and give me just the least amount of relief. Tables. The tables have certainly been turned. And notice... Notice how his request is denied. First, there in verse 25, Abraham says, Hey, in this life, you had all of these good things. You had all the riches. And now, now you have nothing. Lazarus, on the other hand, he had nothing in life. And now, he is receiving this this great reward. And the question is, is is why is that the case? Why why is it that, that this poor man? Is it because he was poor? Is it because the the rich man was rich that these consequences have come? Again, as we talked about in the children's sermon, we know that that's not the case. For this rich man, his his life of excess, his life of greed, his inability to see anything past himself, his inability to store up treasure for himself in a place where, where it would never be destroyed, has led him to this place of eternal death. He would simply remain in torment. Then notice in verse 26, Abraham says, e- even if that was an option, besides, besides, there's a chasm between heaven and hell, a chasm that, that cannot be crossed. In other words, once you are there, there is no return. No one can come and get you there. No one can come and negotiate on your behalf there. It is final. Friends, what an urgency this should give each one of us. We don't know the number of days that we have. The Lord has not revealed that to us. And so the time to know is now. to give us an urgency for ourselves, but also an urgency for a lost in dying world. Christ is the only hope. And we must trust in Him, not later, not on that day, but we must trust in Him now. Well, the rich man, he, he realizes the truth of all of this. He realizes the position that he's in, but, but he thinks maybe, maybe there's hope for someone else. And this is the first selfless thing we see this man do in this whole story. But in verse 27, he has one more plea. He says, Abraham, send Lazarus to my five brothers who are still living so that they might be saved, so that they might know the truth. 
again. Notice, notice how it is denied. Verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. In other words, in God's word, in the pages of scripture, they have all they really need. All they have to do is read, all they have to do is hear with open ears and open hearts. That's why I put that, that verse at the top, the, the God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword able to separate these things. It is the Word of God that these men need. It's more than enough. But notice this, this rich man, he doesn't think so. In verse 30, he knows his own heart. He knows how he felt about God's Word, and he knows that his brothers will not believe just based on that. And so he says, hey, if a, a man comes back from the dead, maybe then, maybe then it will be enough to convince them. And look, people say this type of thing all the time. If God would just speak to me, if he would just act where I could see it visibly, if, if, he, would, if he would just come, stand before us, then we, in that moment, we would really believe. But notice what Abraham says. In verse 31, he says, the word is sufficient. If they will not believe based off the word, then neither will they believe if we did some great sign, if we did some great wonder. Even if a dead man came back to life, they still would not believe. Now, friends, if you don't believe that, then you can turn to John chapter 11, and you can see another Lazarus who was dead and in the grave, and Jesus came and raised him from the dead, and it says that many did believe, but the Pharisees, guess what they did? They went to go plot against Jesus. They went to go kill him. A dead man was standing in front of them. They went to go kill the man who raised him. That's not enough. You can turn to the end of the Gospels. And there was another man who was raised from the dead, Jesus himself. And many believed. But what happened to a whole lot more? They failed to believe. Though Jesus himself stood before them, they would not believe. And so, when death comes, even now, there, there will be no excuse. We won't be able to go on that day and say, well, Lord, if you had just done this, it would have been enough. I would have seen and I would have known. No, he has given us this word, we, we sing it. What more can he say than to you he has said? Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, God spoke in many different ways, through the prophets, through all of these things. But now, now he has spoken clearly through his Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And friends, if we will not believe this, then we won't believe anything. There's no excuse. There will be no escape. Well, friends, we have to end. Um, but, but let me just say that, that I realize that our time in Luke chapter 16 uh, has been difficult. Uh, we have covered a lot of hard subjects, and frankly, there's been times where it hadn't been all that much fun. Uh, but I hope, I hope that, that what it has done is made us all take a hard look at our lives and where our hope and our faith is truly resting. You know, as I was sitting up there with those kids, you know, we, we as adults are programmed to think this way. 
But think how much more they are being programmed to think that their lives rest in the things that they have, the lives that they build for themselves, their jobs, their stuff. Think how much they are being programmed to believe that what Jesus is speaking against here is true. That they are, they are being programmed to think that if they could just get enough stuff, then their lives will be great. Friends, all of that, we know at least long term, will never provide what we long to receive from it. In fact, if it is all we have, then the only place it will send us is to the same place that this rich man ended up. If all we have are riches, earthly riches, earthly possessions, friends, hell is what awaits us. We are poor, poor indeed. But... There is a way to be rich. A way to be rich beyond measure. Rich beyond ways we can even conceive of in our minds. It is only as we rest in Jesus. Here's what I'm about to say. I say not to scare you. I say not to force you into decisions. But I say it because I love you. And more than that, God loves you. Christ loves you. Do not leave this place unsure. Do not leave here today questioning where you will spend your eternal destination. If you feel His call, do not delay. Fall at His feet, confess your sins, and learn, as we, as we talked about in the Catechism, learn to walk in newness of life. Learn to walk in redemption. For those of us who do know that truth, for those of us who are resting in Christ today and know that we will spend an eternity with Him, we better get out of these pews and go tell those people that don't know. If this week has shown us nothing, it is that there is a world that does not know. And friends, they're going to the same place as this rich man. It is a place where we would not want to send our worst enemies. So let's go out and let's tell them the truth as we pray together. Father, these are hard things, difficult things. To, to consider the, the reality of our sin, to consider the, the reality of what it deserves. Lord, we know that, that each of us deserves the same thing that that, that rich man got. Whether, it's, whether we're poor, whether we're rich, no matter our, our earthly conditions. Because we're sinners, because our hearts are, are hard as stone, because we've sinned against you, Lord, that's, that's the reality of what we deserve. Lord, in Christ, you have come and you have shown us the reality of your love. He has taken... Uh, those consequences at the cross. He has taken our sin and He has died in our place. So that today, we can have the security, the hope of knowing that whatever may happen in this life, however bad things may get, however poor we may be, there's a richness that, that awaits us. There's eternity with you that awaits us, which is, is, is all we could ever need. In Jesus, we have everything. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us. Help us to look at our hearts. Help us to, to see and ask ourselves the hard questions. 
Lord, help us to, to rest in your goodness. Help us to rest in your truth. Lord, we pray for the world outside of our walls. People who don't know these truths, people who are not connected to your word or connected to your people, Lord, we pray for revival. We pray that they would know, that many would come to know Jesus as their Savior. Help us to be a part of that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.